This episode is sponsored by Paleo Valley's pasture-raised chicken sticks. I'm super excited to share Paleo Valley's brand new pasture-raised chicken sticks. These chicken sticks are made from 100% pasture-raised chicken and organic spices that are preserved using natural fermentation rather than preservatives. So yes, no fake stuff or additives here. These chicken sticks are sourced from regenerative family farms raised on American pastures and each stick is free of chemicals, antibiotics, pesticides, and added hormones. Paleo Valley's chicken sticks are a perfect snack packed with 7 grams of protein and frankly, a great value without skimping on quality. Make sure to support this podcast and head over to paleovalley.com slash nwj and use code nwj to get 15% off your order. Thanks again for listening and supporting this podcast. You're frying up some bacon or sausage, right? Because you're on the carnivore diet. And so it's pulling 300, 400, 500 cubic feet of air per minute okay. into that fan. Mm. Where is that air coming from? Right. It's going to pull from the path of least resistance. And oftentimes that's the crawl space. Wow. So that's an active pull. And then maybe you have your your kids are having their showers because it's dinner time and you're cooking, they're showering. And now you have the exhaust fans on and and the range fan on. Maybe you have the laundry going too at the same time. All of a sudden, your all these appliances are actually pulling moist or pulling air from somewhere. Where is it pulling from? Hey guys, it's Judy from Nutrition with Judy. We know that eating carnivore helps our bodies to thrive. We take care of our bodies to help it function at its best. But what about our homes? If we know that a home is enclosed by four walls, essentially, what do we need for that home to ensure that the inhabitants inside or people like us are able to thrive? And then if we take this a step further, if we know that we breathe about 20,000 breaths a day, does that mean that our air that we breathe in for 20,000 times, can it be a friend or a foe? I had the pleasure of sitting down with Bill Weber, who's a building science expert, and we talk about what it takes or what to look for in a sick building and what it ultimately takes to make a building healthier. Just like we try to fuel our bodies with the best care, we also should consider our homes and the environments that we live in. Environmental wellness is not just about managing our personal care products. You'll hear in this conversation that a lot of where we live and where we spend most of our time matters a lot. Let's get right into the interview. Hi, Bill. Thank you so much for joining me today. Offline, we were just talking about how Bill, in celebration of being on a carnivore channel, he ate a carnivorous breakfast. So, yay. Um, (laughs) Delicious, too. Yes. Uh, Yeah, I was just telling you that it's really easy to actually eat carnivore for breakfast, especially if you just don't eat the orange juice, don't eat the toast, and then eggs, bacon, sausage, that's all carnivore friendly. So if you can introduce yourself to the people that are listening and watching. Sure. My name is Bill Weber. I'm employed through a company called Avalar, and we are a forensic architecture, engineering, and construction firm. And my part is I specialize in the environmental, the indoor environment. Uh, I've been a licensed contractor in the state of California for uh, over 30 years now and have been specializing in mold and moisture related problems really my whole career. But uh, my first mold project, official mold project was in 1998. So I have I have some years on it and really enjoy helping people get healthy in their indoor environment. It's interesting that you're in California. I know mold is very prevalent there, but we we tend to think, or most people tend to think that mold is in the very humid locations in the U.S. And so it's interesting that you started there a long time ago. Whenever I talk about mold, a lot of people will say, well, mold is everywhere. Um, It's really impossible to get rid of mold. There's natural mold that grows outdoors. But I think there is a difference now than like, say, 100 years ago. And what is it that now we are more aware of mold or fearing mold, or what is it that's making us more sick inside our homes? Sure. As far as I, I think as far as buildings are concerned, uh, one is that we have very tight buildings now. And a hundred years ago, we had very drafty buildings. Uh, Now we've had, we have a lot of paper products and 
wood products that include a lot of adhesives. And that's where mold really likes to, to be supported. It has the carbohydrates in order for it to, to grow. Um, unlike the carnivore diet, we don't have a carnivore friendly house. Uh, we, we really have a, a house that supports the, the, the kingdom of fungi. Uh, back a hundred years ago, we had lath and plaster and redwood doesn't support mold growth. Uh, plaster doesn't support mold growth. And so when, when the builders of the homes a hundred years ago, the building, they knew that it was going to leak, but it was okay because it was drafty. Water could get in and then it could dry out because it was drafty. Now we have really enclosed environments. And then we couple that with our, I think, a greater toxin load now than we've ever had before in the things that we eat, uh, the odors that we breathe in, the volatile organic compounds, the heavy metals that we're, that we're exposed to. I think all of that added up equals, I think, more susceptibility to sick building syndrome and, and, and a water damaged environment. So you mentioned certain products that are used in the home or, um, and that can contribute to mold. Are you saying that the adhesives are part of the problem and not just the paper or what we call? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so uh, I'll just take oriented strand board as an example. So oriented strand board looks like little chips of wood that are all adhered together to form what is has been a replacement for plywood. So plywood has many plies and it's it's a cut around the log itself so it's a long strand of of that of that wood however um what do you do with all those little pieces well they said what with all these little scraps that are in the lumber yard let's use that we'll compress them with with heat and adhesive and we can create plywood so a couple of disadvantages with that is that adhesive it provides uh mold food um, as well as all those little different pieces of wood scraps. So they use uh, softwoods and they use hardwoods together. And each one of those little pieces of, of wood that are glued together all have their capillaries exposed. So what that means is that water can start in one part of that piece of plywood and then work its way all the way up through the other end because it's from going from one capillary to another. And so it's really not a very water resistant material and it's very susceptible to mold growth. And it's, it's used a lot in construction throughout the entire United States. Okay. And then drywall is also very papery. Yes. It has uh, so it's a gypsum core and with a paper on, on either side. So it's a sandwich. So paper, okay. gypsum and paper. And the uh, the paper is used because it's a nice, smooth surface. So when you install it, when you tape it and texture it and paint it, it provides a nice, smooth surface. The problem is, is that paper is what mold loves to grow on. In fact, some of the most toxigenic molds love paper. Mm. And so if we were trying to uh, build a home that was more resistant, we would probably not use Orion strand board. We would not use insulation that has any kind of facing to it or facing as the product that helps bond the the fiberglass together and then we wouldn't use oriented strand board because all these support mold growth yeah it's interesting i mean i don't know very much about building but i went to home depot one day and i was just going through the paper company was the same company that was building those the drywall and stuff and it's just oh like kimberly clarkson who makes toilet paper who makes paper also makes I drywall. And I just thought, oh, I would have never noticed that before had I not been. And so it's just so interesting that we're using the same stuff that, you know, mold can grow on and then we slap it onto our walls. And yes, it looks nice, but we're paying the consequences for our health. Yes. And and it's a, it's a matter of economics too. Okay. Right. Because uh, the drywall is going to be the least expensive product that gets the job done. It also has uh, a fire rating. It's, it's fire retardant because of the gypsum core but it's really not good as in terms of mold growth. There's other products that are actually fiberglass faced as opposed to paper faced, which is a great alternative. And that's what we would recommend without a doubt in wet rooms, like bathrooms, kitchens, laundry rooms, where there's more susceptibility for moisture and then drywall, maybe in the other places. Best case scenario is that the whole home gets built with plywood, unfaced, insulation, whether it's mineral wool or fiberglass, 
and then uh, the fiberglass fiberglass face gypsum product in uh, in exchange for the drywall. And then is fiberglass that uh, the one that's the facing instead of the drywall? Is that a lot more expensive than drywall? Is that why we shifted? Hey guys, just to let you know, my Carnivore Cure book is back in stock. For nine months, it was out of print and used prices were up to $300. Make sure to get your copy today that has over 200 colored tables and graphics and over 400 pages of meaty goodness. We have a limited supply, so get your copy today on Amazon.com. And if you can leave a review, I'd be super grateful. Yeah, so between the labor because uh, it costs more in labor and with oh. drywall uh the labor when, when you work with drywall you're able to score it and crack it okay. with uh, the fiberglass face you actually have to make all your cuts with a mechanical tool so it's it, it's slower to install and you have to be more exacting when you do it and the product is a little bit more expensive so on average it's about 40 percent more okay. than just using paper face drywall okay no that makes sense and then is there a period where drywall started coming in? Was it, does it align with when mold started growing more in the home? Just out of curiosity. Yeah. So um, in the textbooks, it, we'll talk about it flourishing in the mid to late thirties, 1930s. Um, however, I was just on a project this year recently where the building was built in 1924 and it had paper face gypsum behind the plaster. I was amazed. I was stunned. And in fact, the defense uh, in that case, I, I represented the plaintiff and the defense in that case was dead set on that drywall had to do with a remodel that was done at some point. However, there was lead-based paint that was also on that surface of 5,000 parts per million. And what that meant, it had to be old. Right. And there was no sign that, that the material had been installed anywhere recent. So it was uh, it was really extraordinary to see in 1924 that we had drywall in San Francisco. Oh, wow. So it, it did, it's was more prevalent in the thirties, but there can be situations where it's even before that. Yeah. It was starting really started to be used on a mass scale in the mid to late thirties. Okay. Okay. Where would you say that mold is more common? It sounds like bathrooms are one or areas where there's a little bit more humidity, but is there a specific spot or specific areas? I, I would say most prevalent are going to be what we call the wet rooms, where there's going to be plumbing that goes to the rooms. So that's bathrooms, kitchen, laundry areas are primary. Then we have the building envelope, of course. Right. So any any kind of opening in the building envelope makes the building envelope susceptible, okay. meaning windows and doors, the light fixtures that's on on outside the home. I can tell you in investigations, one of the places that I look frequently are all of the wall sconces, the, the light fixtures that are around the perimeter of the home and how are they fastened and what kind of waterproofing do they have? Because every time it rains and if there's any kind of opening or gap where the light fixture is hanging out a little bit, not secure, or maybe not integrated into the waterproofing system of, of the building, we can have moisture coming in and if if any of you, the viewers, look on the outside of the home, there's a lot of openings into the building envelope. Maybe sure. I don't have a ton of mold in my home, but how do we start protecting the home to be more human friendly? Yeah, there's there's so many factors, and I let me let me just go through a few of them. Sure. Um, so in bathrooms, I think what is pretty is really critical is how do we evacuate the moisture that's caused by our showering, bathing. And things like that that we do in those rooms. And often I will see a separate switch for the exhaust fan in the bathroom and not part of the light switch. And so when the the children use the bathroom, a lot of people like a steam, a steam room yeah. when they get out of the shower, right? It's warm, it's comforting. You know, you have to kind of wipe down the mirror because there's condensation that's developed on the mirror. Well, that over and over and over and over again that moisture content is going to be adsorbed by materials all around that bathroom. And so what I would tell your viewers is one of the things to check is, or one of the things that you can do if you have a separate switch for the fan from the light is to combine the two into one switch. 
so that if someone uses the bathroom, the light, the, the fan goes on automatically. If there's a window in the bathroom, then even, even if it can just be open after you get done with the shower, just to allow that moisture to get out, that would be a, a really good move. The, under the vanity cabinet, the, the sink, you might have one sink or two sinks. Check under that cabinet every once and again. I, I see a lot of vanity cabinets that are just loaded with stuff, right? In the bathroom, there's toilet paper, there's shampoo, there's, you know, all, all these kind of products under there. And you can't see if there's a leak or not mm-hmm. until it's kind of too late. Um, the caulking that's around the shower, that's around the sink tops, that should be maintained on a regular basis. And you might ask, what's a regular basis, yeah. right? Um, in my house, it's usually like every 10 years, but it has to do with how many people are living there and the quality of the work and and the susceptibility and you know all those kind of factors uh, tie into it. But but caulking is is the material that bridges the gap between like the backsplash and the countertop, or between the sink and the countertop, where where these places where there's splash over, where that that water can actually get into these cracks and crevices. Um, the same goes with kitchens. Kitchens are obviously more heavily used than bathrooms. So many times we we see that there's no caulking between the backsplash and the countertop behind the sink. And then every time that you turn on and off the faucet, there's a certain amount of water that goes uh, behind there. And then behind that, that, or under the kitchen sink on that wall, that's sometimes protected by the back of the cabinet. You can't even see the drywall. Right. But if there's an odor back there, that's probably something that's going on back there. And then in laundry rooms, I think a not so well-known problem is the dryer. The dryer is, is in, in essence, a negative air machine. I'm going to say a couple of different things about the laundry room. Okay. The, the, the dryer pulls in anywhere from 300 cubic feet of air per minute to 600 cubic feet of air per minute in order to dry your clothes. Okay, so it has to get the air somewhere from somewhere in order to dry the clothes. So where is it pulling it from? Some laundry rooms are really closed, like they're small rooms. Some of them have uh, the water heater in the same room as the dryer. So if you close all the doors, now it's it's sucking carbon monoxide from the water heater into the laundry room and drying your clothes with carbon monoxide. But I think one of the the big keys about uh, the dryer is where where is that exhausting to is it going through a wall cavity and it, and is it coming out to, as much as going into the dryer is coming out of the dryer if we go to the exhaust it's probably outside somewhere hopefully outside not in your crawl space out, outside and we have very little air coming out maybe there's a break in that ducting somewhere in the wall cavity and so that, that believe it or not, is one of the things that we often see in our investigations is somewhere there's a there's a break between the dryer and the outside. And then all this humid air is getting into ceiling cavities and wall cavities, creating mold problems. Wow. I never heard of that from the dryer because you would always think maybe the washer is the issue and you never would think about the dryer because it's like, oh, it's just dry air blowing around. But I never thought about that. A couple of things on what you said. So um, our family since I work with so many people with mold illness, uh, we decided to test our home and it wasn't too bad. We had a Hertz meal 14 in one area. So we decided let's just do remediation because we have young kids. And um, just like you said, so we found that a door was leaking water in and it was hitting our bottom molding. And so then we did some kitchen cabinetry because of that. And then when our IEP came, he suspected that our sink area may have because there wasn't enough caulking in the back next to the backsplash. So every time we were doing the dishes and so we, we decided we'll just get rid of it and we'll put in a new sink. And just like you said, the water was dripping slowly into that crack and there was mold growing on the back and it was very small, but it was growing on the back of the, the cabinet um, where the sink was. And so if we never pulled it out, we would have never known. And so now every time I do the, um, obviously we have caulking there, but I also just wipe it down a little bit so that sure. I'm not going to just have little puddles of water because after we do the dishes, we never think to, you know, clean around the sink to make sure it's kind of dry or less puddly with little, uh, amounts of water. So that was interesting. For and sure. then, yes, my kids, um, in terms of baths and stuff. So we have a separate fan. 
And so we have to, I have to always turn it on. And it's so interesting, but yeah, they don't like it. They said it's too loud and stuff. So I have to always Mm -hmm. remind my kids. And then lastly, every time we go into hotels, I look for the fan because now I'm more hyper aware of these things. And Mm -hmm. most hotels do not have a fan. They they actually do, Judy. It's just not, not, yeah. So it's usually on the rooftop. Okay. And then all of the fans that are in the stack uh, are all pulled. So it's drawn uh, from the rooftop and exhaust off the rooftop. So in the bathroom, in the hotel room, mm-hmm. it's, it's constantly on. It's constantly. Oh, okay. Okay. So what I would challenge you is just to get a piece of the toilet paper or the tissue. And there, there is going to be a grate that's either in the shower area okay. or in the ceiling, like on the wall in the shower area or on the ceiling. And you could put a tissue to it and you, and it'll stick to it. Okay. Because it's constantly on. Oh, I see. Oh, that's so funny. So my uh, my brain was, oh, they just wanted to build the places cheap. And so they're not adding fans. But because <laughs> after we take a bath, it's so humid or, you know, there's so much steam sure. in the bathrooms, especially in the hotels. So, um, okay. So that's good to know. I, I, I'm definitely <laughs> going to try that toilet paper trick. Are there other ways to monitor and control humidity levels? Or is that is that like a good way to start? So obviously the caulking, making sure the windows making sure there's not little places where water can slightly seep in, making sure to reduce the humidity levels after showers, um, doing wash, um, washing, washes, and then the laundry. Are there any big spots, even like in a living room or and uh, not assuming the windows, but any other room other than that? Let's talk about the exterior building envelope okay. a little bit more because we talked about like light fixtures. Are they, are they tight to the, to the building? Can you um, define what you mean by envelope? Just because I was sure. that too. But sure. So the, the building envelope is is what I refer to the exterior perimeter of, of the home. OK, um, so the building envelope it en- envelops the living space. OK. And so the building envelope, I, I think that uh, regular maintenance of caulking and paint is just so, so important. Uh, edges and corners and, and things like that need to be looked at um, really annually. Before whatever, wherever your listeners are um, throughout the country, there's going to be different times of the year where water affects them. Even if they're in Arizona, there's monsoon season, right? Right in June. And and we need to be prepared for that. Make sure that everything's nice and tight. I think um, crawl spaces. Let me bring up crawl spaces for a moment because crawl spaces are, are a place in your home that no one ever would like to go for any reason. You know, when, when a homeowner says that they've been in their crawl space, it's usually to to wire something, you know, put a Cat5 cable from one room to another or the television cable. But other than that, no one goes in there. And for me as an IEP, it's just a plethora of information. I, I can tell so much about the history of the home, what's going on, the type of plumbing, uh, previous leaks. And, but I think what gets the calls that I get frequently, and again, I'm California where there's a lot of crawl spaces here. I know that in different parts of the country, there aren't as many, but for those listeners, I think that the knowing what's going on in the crawl space will really help. If, if there's damp soil, if there's wet soil, if there's flooding, if there's a sump pump that's in the crawl space for whatever reason, it's likely that we have enough moisture there to create uh, some amount of mold growth either in the crawl space or in all the little penetrations that go up into the home because the the health of the interior of of the built environment is contingent on the health of the crawl space because the air from the crawl space is going to work its way up into the living space by what's called stack effect. So warm air rises and it's going to pull, it's actually going to draw that, that air from the crawl space into the living space. And it's, is it just because of the heat and then it rises into the living area and that's how? Yeah. So let, let's just say um, your your house is closed up because it's raining outside and you're cooking and you turn on your range exhaust fan right. because you're boiling water or you're frying up some bacon or sausage, right? Because you're on the carnivore, carnivore diet. And, um, and so the it's pulling 300, 400, 500 cubic feet of air per minute. into that fan, Mm. where is that air coming from? Right. It's going to pull from the path of least resistance. And oftentimes that's the crawl space. So that's an active pull. And then maybe you have 
your your kids are having their showers because it's dinner time and you're cooking, they're showering, and now you have the exhaust fans on and and the range fan on. Maybe you have the laundry going too at the same time. All of a sudden, all these appliances are actually pulling moist or pulling air from somewhere. Where is it pulling from? Then when it's all static and you're not pulling from anywhere, there's still pressure differentials that are happening. And in natural, naturally, there's what's called stack effect where warm air rises. So the air in the home ends up wanting to go into the attic, right? And then it goes out, out the attic, it vents out the attic. But where does that get displaced from? If, if everything's closed up, it's going to get displaced from the crawl space. So that's why the crawl space is just so important to maintain clean. And the attic, too, for that for the same reason, because there's there's also a phenomenon called reverse stack effect. And that's where air is actually getting pulled from the attic into the building space. So when we think of how do we make our homes healthy, we have to absolutely consider the attic and the crawl space as part of that equation. Do you see more issues, though, with the crawl space than the attic? Or do you think it's equally, you know, if I if I had to start with one, would you start with the crawl space? I would. Okay. I would. That I think that's more the most susceptible. Okay. Um, however, if the crawl space is bad, the attic might be bad as well because that moisture is going to end up in the attic. Whatever starts in the crawl space, there's going to be more in the attic. So when I see a really bad crawl space, automatically that attic has something going on there because everything filters to the top. Yeah. Um, let's say I decided I am just going to move from my home because I think my home is too damaged or maybe I'm renting and I just want to move to some new place. And I think a new build must be clean. The adhesives are good. So therefore I will just monitor everything to the letter to make sure that nothing gets water damaged. Should I test um, how, what do you think when I start to move and is all new building safe? That's a great question. I, the first thing that comes to mind is volatile organic compounds. So a new home build is going to have some off-gassing of the materials that that are in that building from the flooring, the luxury vinyl plank, the engineered floor, the laminate, the carpeting is all going to be off-gassing. The cabinetry, you know, there, there's just going to be a lot of new materials that are off-gassing. So volatile organic compounds, which I know, you know, at, I know we were going to be talking about mold mostly, but that is a consideration in new homes. I can tell you that in, in my practice, I don't ever take a brand new property as a totally mold-free, uh, problem-free, water damage-free uh, building. And the reason is a couple of things. One, because I'm involved with litigation, that's one of my practices. I get called by attorneys. They've had water damage. They have someone who's sick in the home. And uh, the contractors in, in, in California are responsible for latent defects for 10 years after they've built that home or that building, 10 years. And so I I go into homes that are brand new. In fact, I I recently had one that hadn't even been lived in yet. And my client, who's mold sensitive, uh, was going to rent that house, but they wanted to just make sure, right? Brand new, just built. It was, we had a, a magnificent firestorm in Santa Rosa, California, which is just near Napa. And much of Santa Rosa caught fire and a lot of new homes were built there. So subsequently the builder builds the home. Uh, my tenant or the, my client wants to be a tenant there and says, Bill, I think we found a great place just built. It's beautiful. It's a view of the whole Valley. So on and so forth. Just check it out for me. And just, I, I just want to have peace of mind before I move in. So we, we tested the interior living space and it was great. The crawl space terrible. What had happened was the builder uh, did not put the ventilation that was required by the plans in place. And as a result, when they when they put down what's called the rat slab or the, the concrete floor of the crawl space, all that moisture that was coming out of that rat slab was absorbed by the by the framing and there was mold all over the crawl space because of the construction practices and because they didn't put the code required ventilation and it was on the plans and the contractor 
was a design build contractor, which means they created the plans and they built the house and they still didn't build it the way it was supposed to be built. And so what we did is we had to remediate that crawl space and we had to now put a ventilation system in to supplement what little uh, ventilation was there. And so I never take for granted, no one should take for granted that a new build is water damage free. Another thing to look out for when you're looking at a a new property is when was that property built? Was that property built during the rain? And if so, what kind of protections were were made in order to protect the framing? So Judy, even even buildings that are built in dry weather, the, the materials that are used for building a home have moisture in them. And because the buildings are built so tight, sometimes if the if that material isn't dried out before it's all closed up, that can help stimulate mold growth in cavities. But to make it worse, if they're now saturated by rain or by fog, in, in you know we have a magnificent amount of fog in the Bay Area, that fog can actually add to the moisture content of the building, and then it gets closed up, and now we have sometimes non-visible mold that's growing in all of the walls inside the home. So now that I've been involved in this business for so long, and I've seen so much, I would tell everyone that the best move is to have the home sampled with uh, with that ERMI, E-R-M-I. Uh, I prefer what's called an ERMI plus three. Some labs know what that is. It's it's ERMI plus, there's Fusarium, Ulocladium chartarum, and Ulocladium botrytis. Th- those three molds weren't part of the original ERMI study, but we just find one is that they they are just really good indicators of long-term water damage and they're not on the original ERMI. But ERMI plus three for for a new home or for a rental even, to have one sample inside, at least one sample inside and one sample outside to compare the two, I would say at a very minimum. The best case would be one sample for every 500 square feet in that home uh, one outside, one in the crawl space, one in the attic, all depending on what what the persons can afford. And then when we use those ERMI, so usually it's either vacuum or you can use a Swiffer type of um, cloth, but is there a certain area that you recommend? We don't have to talk about how to do the ERMI, but mm-hmm. you know, if if there's a certain, so if I'm going to consider a new home and maybe I just do one or two tests inside the house, is there a certain spot I should be wiping or swabbing, and then also for the outside? Yeah. So inside, I can tell you what we want to avoid. What we want to avoid is the floor. We don't want to wipe the floor because when you're coming from outside to inside, you're going to bring things from outside into inside that aren't necessarily related to the building. They're related to the outside. So we stay away from the floor. If the properties were being used by other people prior, then I stay away from bathrooms and kitchens. Okay. Mostly because there there are chemicals that are in, that produce inhibitors for DNA processing. In other words, bleach, uh, olive oil, uh, clay in in like cat boxes. All of those can affect the ERMI results, and then either uh, provide sam- or provide data that is less than what's actually happening, or they'll that you won't be able to process them at all. So bathrooms and kitchens, we stay away from and floors. The only other thing that I don't like uh, using the ERMI around are openable windows because I don't know how open they were and what kind of influence they have from the outside as well. Uh, On the outside of the building, what we want is on the windward side of that home. And sometimes you don't know what the windward side is if you're just looking at a home. So that you could do all, all the sides of the home. Uh, at least three feet off the ground is ideal. And then we want to collect us from objects that are either plastic, mm. glass, and or stainless steel. So we want to also avoid, avoid rust because ro- rust is an inhibitor. Uh, so stainless steel won't be rusty, plastic won't be rusty, and glass won't be rusty. So maybe there's some patio furniture. Um, there could be a street sign out in front, a mailbox maybe a fixed pane window on the outside of the house. And you can get a good gauge for what's on the outside because Judy, believe it or not, there are neighborhoods that aren't very healthy uh, just on the outside. Maybe there's 
Maybe they have a chicken coop that they use brown newspaper as bedding for the hens. Oh, right. Maybe maybe the neighbor has uses cardboard or newspaper as a weed guard, you know, because they're that's ecologically friendly, right? Mm-hmm. To recycle that. But what happens is it supports mold growth. And if it's the windward side, we we have had many properties with those problems. I I recently had one where there was a barn with contaminated hay with a bunch of stachybotrys that was blowing onto my client's property. And we got stachybotrys inside the house, but there was no signs of a long-term water damage. And so we started looking external and then I tracked it down to the, to a barn that was, I don't know, maybe 300 yards away, but it was on the windward side. And so I think it's really important for someone as they're looking especially if they're mold sensitive to be looking at what does that neighborhood look like too? And what's, what's the effects of, of the exterior. I'll even add that in central California, we have a lot of agriculture and we have the tilling of the soil on a fairly, fairly regular basis. And as you move to towards the South part of our state within the central Valley, we see this really big increase of hay fever from uh, what's called valley fever. That's where that comes from. And that's uh, the aspergillus actually growing in the system, in the lungs. And that's from the agriculture, from tilling the soil, it goes in the air, and then it the wind blows that air to the south part of our valley. And then the people who live in that south part now become a little bit, they, they can become ill or, or susceptible to problems because they're constantly in that that fight with herbicides, fungicides, and different types of molds from the soil. And so when I get a call from down in that area of California, one of my questions is, is do you have a whole house fan? You know what a whole house fan is? It, okay, so a whole house fan is a fan that is in the attic and you turn that on, open your windows, and it draws in air to cool down your house in the twilight air hours of the day. So as the sun goes down and gets cooler outside, you go, I want to air condition my, my house kind of instantly. So you turn on the fan, you open the windows and you suck air from the outside. And what a lot of my clients don't know is that it's dirtier outside of their house in right. some areas than it is inside the house and they're drawing contaminants in. And so um, I, I'm not a proponent of whole house fans when you don't know what the exterior is really like. So when I listen to this, it makes a lot of sense, but let's say my neighbor does have mold. It's this, this is where I think it gets a little overwhelming is, well, if my neighbor is moldy, let's say, and they're part of the windward side. And so they're whatever stuff is coming towards me. Yeah. It just seems so defeatist in a sense of how do I tell my neighbors to remediate their homes? Like what is, yeah. what, what have you seen in practice? <laughs> yeah. Well, I have one working right now, actually, okay. Okay. where I have a neighbor in a, this is a very wealthy neighborhood. Okay. And they have a chicken coop mm-hmm. where they're using newspaper. They have a dilapidated building. Okay. And when they get um, deliveries from their delivery service, their boxes go outside sure. uh, towards the neighbor. So I have three items on the other side. And and so as I'm talking to my client, I haven't been there yet. They've, they've described this to me because we found that there's a lot of stachybotrys and ketomium outside. Uh, on one side of their house. And so they they don't have a very good relationship with their neighbor, unfortunately. But I said that, you know, filing an injunction for them to do something on their property as a public nuisance is tough because it's their property and people feel like they can, they it's their property and they'll do whatever they want. And so what I would say is maintain friendly relationships with your neighbors at all times from beginning from the very beginning of your, of your relationship, you know, although you may not be living in an apartment and you don't, you know, you're not that close, uh, even in a single family home air, it's just better to have good relations with your neighbors. Legally, there, there is some recourse when we can show that you're causing damage to my property. You're devaluing my property because of, of what is going on on your property. And so uh, an attorney can help you with that. Okay. No, that makes a lot of sense. Sometimes I hear that if there's a little bit of mold, I can just do DIY and clean it myself. Then I hear don't use bleach. Some people say use hydrogen peroxide. Do you have any recommendations to that? And then do you recommend that we clean mold or little amounts of mold on our own? Yeah. Okay. Um, 
So cleaning the mold on your own is really dependent on what has caused that mold to grow. Okay. What's the what's that affected area? And is it just the tip of the iceberg? Mm-hmm. Right? Is there something that's going on that's bigger than what we think that it is? And I think that's the hard call for for a homeowner to make. In terms of cleaning it, products like bleach, like vinegar and hydrogen peroxide, um, none of that's really needed. Oh. Dish soap and water. That's what's needed. And uh, and very few people can believe it when I first say it, but so bleach and hydrogen peroxide are both antimicrobials and mold has a defense system and mold when it, when it senses that it's going to die, it's going to release a lot of mycotoxins. And if the mold is growing, it's really, you know, what is the source and has a source been rectified or not? You know, there's a lot of factors that too many to really go into this podcast. But what I'd say is dish soap and water is the way to go. And in three to five drops of dish soap to one quart of water, and then a microfiber cloth that's that that you spritz with like a hand pump sprayer um, and wipe it down is going to be the best and most effective way to remove the mold. Believe it or not, it sounds too simple. I know. And there's a zillion products in the market that say kill mold and do all this, but really all you want to do is remove it. You don't need to kill it if you're removing it. The major point though is, is that if there's mold on the outside of the sheetrock or outside of whatever surface, what is on the other side where it's dark, doesn't have airflow, doesn't have sunlight, um, has that warmth in the, in the, in the wall cavity, there's usually something more that's going on. So it's not just generally cleaning unless you're talking about the the shower or the countertop or something that is readily, you know, it's not, there's nothing behind those areas. Yeah. And that's normally the only time I recommend if there's like a little bit, you see, a little bit of black stuff you see maybe in the grout in the shower, maybe, mm-hmm. you can, but even I've also heard beyond the bathtub, there's, that's like, can be an indicator of a lot of mold behind that. So it's just, it's tricky. Yeah. And I, I think people should just be very, aware of if mold, if they are sensitive to mold, they probably should not be touching it. It doesn't matter how little or a lot. And then if you want a DIY, then maybe a little bit of soap and stuff can be helpful. You know, as we're closing, you know, if I want to just make sure that my home is healthy to leave with some tips, maybe top one, two, three tips that you can think of. And it doesn't have to necessarily just be mold specific. It sounds like VOCs are just as big of an issue, but you know, is there something we can do or some tips that you yeah. would leave us with? Okay. I, I recently had a project that just kind of blew my mind and I went, how many other people might be doing this? So they they had a lot of potted plants. And so number one is that potted plants will will produce a lot of moisture as well. Right. And I love plants. I, I really enjoy them. In this particular house, they had pots that were made out of recycled paper. So seven, it said 72% recycled paper. I was trying to find out where is the source of the mold inside the family room, dining room area, where it's nowhere else in the house, but the readings were so high in this room. And I'm just, you know, what what's happening in this room that is so different than any other room? So just kind of praying about it. And then I, out of the corner of my eye, I see the pot there and I went, that's really interesting. I walked and it, it had a little tag on it and said made of 72% recycled paper. And so I picked up the pot and looked at the bottom. It was all black and white at the bottom of this pot. And they had 36 of them in this room. Oh my gosh. And that was the source. So what I would say is understand that moisture around anything that has that is a paper product can lead to mold. That would be a really big one. Maintaining the outside of your home, another big one. Uh, ventilating in areas that accumulate moisture in the air is is another really big one. I would say that if your listener uh, lives in a older home, maybe it doesn't have insulation in the exterior walls. Maybe it's pre-1968. In 1968, they started mandating, the codes started mandating insulation in exterior walls. Prior to 1968, you didn't have to get insulation. Okay. So in that time frame, in the late mid mid sixties to and, and beyond, there there's some 
homeowners that elected to have insulation installed in the home. But if there's no insulation in these exterior walls, they're prone to condensation because the amount of moisture that's in, in the house wants to, is, is attracted to cold surfaces. Just like if you had a glass of ice water in front of you, there would be condensation on the end of that glass. And so ventilate or air circulation around those walls, if they're not insulated, is going to be really key too, so that we don't have mold growth. When the headboard is pushed up against an uninsulated wall, and, and you produce moisture when you exhale at night. So if you're exhaling for eight hours in the bedroom and you're not, you don't have an insulated wall and you have your headboard pressed up, I would challenge any of your listeners, take that headboard away and do you, do you see anything there? And you might see some molds that are growing on that surface of the, of the, of the wall. And so what we want to do is pull that headboard away anywhere from three to six inches and just allow airflow behind those. Uh, pull the dresser away and get airflow behind it. And then we can reduce the amount of mold growth there too. Okay. And you, and also just, I mean, I know it's too much for this podcast episode, but also just making sure that the HVAC unit and all of that is being maintained. <laughs> yes. I, I know we talked about that before we went on and in the HVAC system or the heating and cooling system in the house is, is uh, it's the lungs of the building. And so it's almost like asking a doctor, can you talk on lungs for a minute? I mean, there's, there's so much to it, but, but at the end of the day, maintaining and servicing that the, the forced air mechanical system in the building is just really important because a, a problem that is in or around the HVAC now affects the entire house because it's a distribution system for all the parts of the house. Just like it's a blood vessels that go all over the house, right? You know, it, it's one problem in one area can spread to the rest of the house. And going back to the crawl space, a lot of the crawl spaces has ducting in the crawl space, and then there might be a rodent infestation. They open up the ductwork, and now it's a direct route from all the nasties in the crawl space to be distributed throughout the house. And so, yes, the HVAC system is is really important to maintain and. Uh, clean whenever possible and and to consider if if any of your listeners are are wanting to get they're they're replacing their system for whatever reason usually because it's old that i would uh recommend a, a a system that has an advanced filtration package on it anywhere from a merv 13 merv 13 up to 16 that and and how that's gauged is just how how well does it filter and then it'll help filter the air every time that you're using the system. Right. No, no, no. That makes a lot of sense. I, I just want to say something about the plant. So I had a couple of clients that were getting sick in their home because one was an herbalist and she was selling these little plants. And so she mm -hmm. had a whole section of her house dedicated to these little plants and even had little sprayers or mist. mist oh, yes. yeah. um, and then we had another client where the mom loved plants and had plants all over the house. And we think, you know, plants are so good for clean air, but mm -hmm. it was the soil itself that was bringing in so much mold and moisture to the home. And so they had to get rid of all the plants and they had to remediate the home. And it was, it's just, we never think that we think plants are so good. Well, I don't think the carnivore community does necessarily. <laughs> yeah, it's so interesting that um, our plants can actually impact our healing too. Yeah, I, I, I'm not against plants. I, I love plants. We okay. do have plants in our home, okay. but I don't have an atrium. Okay. Right. Okay. And I don't have a mister. And, you know, orchids, people okay. that, that collect orchids, they, they need a certain humidity and temperature to grow their orchids. And I would just challenge the listeners to maybe get a greenhouse or some sort of separate structure other than the living, than, than the living space in order to do that. Okay. Well, thank you so much for your time. This was so helpful. I mean, I learned so much even being in the SIR space for a while, but if you can uh, share, you know, how to find a good IEP and what is an IEP, we didn't even define that, but, um, and then, you know, where can people find you? And if they wanted to work with you, how do they go about doing that? Sure. So I, I think a couple of great resources. One is uh, the ICI, which is I, S as in Sam, EAI.org. And there is a resource page there. Um, and you can find IEPs by zip code or by area. And then there's survivingmold.com, 
which is also a great resource where you can find IEPs and, and other professionals. I work for a company called Avalar and our website is avalar.net. A-V-E-L-A-R.net would be the great, would be a great place. Uh, my email address is my first initial B, last name Weber, W-E-B-E-R at ravalar.com. That's R-A-V-E-L-A-R.com for the email address. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Are you on social media? Because I'll, I'll put all of what you just brought up in the show notes, but are you on social media? Uh, only on LinkedIn. Okay. Okay. So I will then put your LinkedIn as well then. Well, thank you so much for your time. It's uh, it's very obvious you are a wealth of information when it comes to building health and just all things serve. So thank you so much for, you know, just joining us and enlightening our community. Thank you, Judy. Appreciate it. Okay, guys. I hope that you enjoyed this interview. Bill is a wealth of information. He is so funny and he is just so knowledgeable when it comes to building science, how to really take care of your home, what to look for, all these small nuances that if you ever decide to work with an IEP, he's probably one of the best ones out there. I hope that this information was helpful and I know that it can be overwhelming if you're brand new to taking care of your home. It took us about a year to slowly implement little things in our house to make it more human friendly. We have air purifiers in our rooms. We have water alarms under our sinks. We have these little things, but the biggest thing to do is just to take it step by step. If you started a carnivore diet when you were eating standard American diets, that was overwhelming. But just think about it meal at a time, one meal at a time, maybe just eat steak, maybe just eat bacon and eggs. And in the same vein with a home, just start maybe one room at a time or one thing at a time. It's more about getting things done slowly than to be like, okay, now I need to fix my home, whole home and trying to figure out everything at once because that's when it becomes overwhelming. And that's when it's just easier to say, it's too much of a mess. I can't handle it. I'm not going to deal with it. I'm just going to ignore the problem. But there are little things you could do along the way. And so I don't want this interview to be something of there's so much that we need to do, but rather, okay, I have little things I could work on. Maybe I just tackle this. And that's all you need to slowly start getting your building to be healthier so that when you take your 20 breaths a day, you are living even in just a slightly better environment than you did yesterday. All right, guys, make sure to eat a lot of meat, take care of your homes and the environment you live in because it's the only place you have to live. I will talk to you later. Bye guys. Thanks for listening to the Nutrition with Judy podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please make sure to leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast app so more listeners like you can find the show. If you want more practitioner care and support, head over to nutritionwithjudy.com groups so you can get more real talk about carnivore, the environment, and root cause healing. You can also find my content on Nutrition with Judy's YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Make sure to sign up for my weekly newsletter and learn more about in-depth articles with infographics at nutritionwithjudy.com slash articles. You can find my two books, Carnivore Cure and the Complete Carnivore Diet for Beginners on carnivorecure.com and amazon.com. At the heart of Nutrition with Judy's practice, our mission lies with a deep, unwavering passion for service and community. We will continue to empower you to have the knowledge and tools to live a life nearly symptom-free because we firmly believe in healing and wellness for all.